we come in, walk through with a friend of ours who was a bit more experienced than us uh, because it was laid out really oddly. And our friend says, well, what you really need to do is, is completely change the layout. I mean, I'm in my mid forties and, you know, should be retiring in about 50 years, but I find myself starting this whole new career of being a real estate investor. And you know what? Like I'm super passionate about it and excited. Welcome to the Freedom Chasers podcast, where we bring you interviews and discussions that share the stories, successes, goals, and dreams of real estate agents and real estate investors pursuing a life of purpose and freedom. All right. Today, we are here with Laura Jimenez. Um, We are really excited to get into your journey, Laura. Very interesting story. So she's actually been working in government. She's still working in government. But she's also a real estate entrepreneur and an Airbnb host. Um, Laura, before we jump into your amazing story, could you kick it off with a crazy real estate transaction or experience that you've had so far? Well, I would say it might be the one that I'm sitting in right now. So I, among the types of real estate investing that I do, I also house hack and I'm living and doing this interview from my house hack. And um, this uh, is a is a two unit uh, apartment in a 100 plus year old home uh, in the D.C. metro area. And as you might imagine, 100 year old homes are very built very differently than homes today. So we originally came in thinking that um, this was going to be just paint, flooring, um, you know, just an easy remodel. And the, the transaction itself, I, I wouldn't say it was crazy. It's, it's the story I'm getting into is more of the rehab. Um, we originally thought, you know, paint, flooring. We come in, walk through with a friend of ours who was a bit more experienced than us uh, because it was laid out really oddly. The bedroom was right when you would walk in to the like the living room. And then there was this large room in the middle that nobody really used. And then the back was a really small, oddly laid out kitchen. And our friend says, well, what you really need to do is is completely change the layout, which completely blew our budget $40,000, dollars $50,000 later. It's beautiful. I love it. You can see, you know, the exposed brick. We did all of that. We've got a beautifully it's laid gorgeous. out. And it's amazing. Absolutely love this place. But I think the, the process of it was, it was really stressful. It was really expensive, but there were so many lessons learned. And I, I, I am really at this point grateful for having gone through it early in, in, in my career. But, you know, I would say for any new investor out there, you know, make sure that when you're walking through these properties that you are doing your due diligence and all of the things that you want to change, you're getting a very clear scope of work and you're getting a very clear sense of your budget because, if you take on something and it winds up being much bigger than you plan for, like that could spell the end of your real estate investing. And thankfully, you know, like this was a house hack. I have a job where I make good money. So I, I could afford the additional work that this place wound up being. But I think that's not the case for a lot of people. So, you know, go in eyes wide open um, and know that you're going to make mistakes along the way. But if you keep putting one foot in front of the other, you're going to wind up with something pretty great. Yeah, that's awesome. And so you being like, I, we have some shared passions, me being a former educator, you being in education. Tell us a little bit about what led you to want to invest in real estate. 
um, I just remember learning about financial independence and just always being curious. Um, and it wasn't until I got with the, the partner I, I'm with now that I, I really had the, I think, support um, and frankly, just just the other sort of know-how, right? I'm really good with numbers. I can run analysis on properties and do things like that, but I don't know nothing about rehabbing and like the, the nuts and bolts of, of, you know, taking on a project like that. And when, you know, I found my partner, it was just, you know, we had this vision for this life that we wanted. So, um, you know, I think it was something that I just heard about and learned and pursued, I would say like mid-career. I mean, I'm in my mid forties and, you know, should be retiring in about 50 years, but I find myself starting this whole new career of being a real estate investor. And you know what, like I'm super passionate about it and excited and is something that I really want to figure out a way to teach to, to children, you know, to, to kids in high school, because I think this is something that's not taught that really ought to be. Um, so 100%. Yeah. So, so you became aware, mate, whether it be, was it, online or, or how, how did financial independence cross your path? Yeah. So, you know, I knew a couple of people who were investing in real estate. And so I was always a little bit curious about what they were doing, but I was super intimidated. Like I thought, oh, you need to have tons of money. This is something that rich people do. Like I can't do this, but it was something that was always in the back of my mind. And I remember um, somebody mentioning bigger pockets. And this was several years ago. So I thought, okay, well, let me just kind of poke around. And bigger pockets for folks who haven't heard about it, it it's this on it's a website, but it's much more than that. It's this community of, of real estate investors and they have tons of resources that are available, all of these forums that cover every topic that you could imagine. And I just got lost online and um learned more and more. And then of course, you know, I heard about that book that everybody has heard about rich dad, poor dad, and it completely blew my mind. I mean, I was like, what? <laughs> because I was, I was the poor dad. I was the person who had gone and gotten all of the degrees and I had a job and I was stable, but I was also going to have to work for the rest of my life, you know? Um, and I was never going to be able to um, take, you know, really luxurious vacations and, and take care of my family in a way that I wanted to. So that kind of blew my mind once I heard about that. And there was really no looking back after I read Rich Dad Poor Dad. I just started consuming book after book after book and just, I, 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 I dove all the way in. Love it. So the passion gets ignited. The, the vision becomes clearer what was the first couple steps that you took? Like, what was your journey like from, okay, I'm awakened now to, I can, I can yep. do this. It's real to taking action. Yep. So I remember that, uh, right around that time, um, I was in a home that had me house poor. Uh, it was a beautiful home, but, you know, it was costing me about $4,000 a month. When all was said and done, it was costing about $4,000 a month to live there. And it was way more house than I needed. And um, I said, okay, I've, I've, I've got to get rid of this, this house. But I, I couldn't sell it quite immediately because there was just other things going on, going on in my life. So I said, okay, 
let me get a couple of roommates so that I can just have some breathing room. Let, let me try this out. So I just listed two of the bedrooms, no, one bedroom on Airbnb. And then for the other, I got a, a long-term tenant. And that was eye-opening because all of a sudden I was kind of doing nothing and still checks were coming in. <laughs> so I got that taste of passive income. That's I was like, so oh. lovely. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> wait a minute, like I'm getting paid for something that like I did a long time ago. Um, and so that just kind of ignited another firing me was like, okay, so I see like this really can work. Um, so I wound up selling that house. I moved to the town I'm in now and I just waited to find an opportunity. I knew I wanted a multifamily because by then I had learned about the power of, of house hacking um, and the town that I live in, there uh, there are lots of little duplexes and like renting is a thing here. So I knew it would be really easy for me to find a place where I could do that. Um, and originally I was going down the path of doing long-term rentals, um, which I did. I found a great set of tenants to um, move into the other unit. But I, I remember just the cash flow was just so low. It was like a few hundred dollars a month. And granted, it's a house hack. So, you know, I'm living for free, which is great. And there's value to that. It's like, well, if I move out, then, you know, the unit I'm in is pure cash flow. But then I remember, wait a minute, Airbnb, could I, could I do that? And, and um, it also just, it just so happened that my, my tenants only stayed one year. So I thought, there's my opportunity. Totally. So uh, I, I converted it into an Airbnb. Uh, I took a course. There's there's this um, uh, person online, Rob Bill. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he's kind of the guru of Airbnb. I enrolled in his program called Host Camp. So I learned all about like, what are the systems you need to put in place to create this as a business so that you're not you know, tied down and making this more active income than it needs to be. Um, and I feel like that just kind of gave me the confidence to, to keep going. So from there, oh God, it, and it happened so quickly. So uh, bought this house in January of 2021. It took us several months to fix up the upstairs unit. We had, we had some issues there. Cause again, these hundred year old houses, like you just don't know what to expect, expect the unexpected. Um, got the tenants in and we were fixing this unit moved in. But ever since that time, um, we have bought an off market duplex with a friend of mine that that's the unit that we are currently fixing and listing on Airbnb as of this weekend, it is going to happen. Um, and then that same friend wants us to property manage. And when I say us, it's my boyfriend and I to property manage um, another home of his in our town. So we're doing that at the same time. Um, we are partnering with my boyfriend's parents and we're renting some of their land. We may even split it off, but we're gonna build a geodome. Geodome is actually, actually gonna be delivered in a couple weeks. Um, and then we're gonna build two more glamping units on that lot. So it's gonna be like a glamping campsite. Um, and that's also, you know, like an off-market deal. Um, to buy the geodome, I used a self-directed IRA, which is like a whole other world. This is um, so impressive. So yeah. Like you're stringing so many things together so well, you know, long-term rentals, Airbnbs, geodesic domes, uh, you know, and then you're talking about self-directed IRA. I mean, this is like a lot of people take 20, 30, 40 years of investing to slowly start working their way into all these strategies. So kudos to you for 
I mean, you really seem like a woman who learns and just takes immediate action. So super impressive. Um, yeah. yeah, thank you. It's It's been quite an education. So talk to us too about like, do you have like a sense of like why you're able to be so fearless? Like, you know, just a lot of people have to kind of go through and struggle and I mean, you're just taking action. Was it was something that you learned being in the education department or where do you feel like you built that level of just action before fear? That is a great question. I do think some of it is like nature and nurture. I, I think some of it I'm just born with. I'm, I was the oldest child. So just like taking responsibility, taking action was just something that was part of my everyday. But I also think that um, I was incredibly lucky to be surrounded by family who gave me unconditional love and gave me a sense of, of confidence. And like, you know, sometimes I'm a little overly confident, but like, for example, I applied to one college, the college I wanted to go to, I was like, why would I apply anywhere else if I don't want to go? And I got in, totally. right? Like, yeah. I wouldn't tell anybody else to do this, but I did the same thing for <laughs> graduate school. Like, I was like, that's the school I want to go to, apply. Um, and, but I think the thing that really kind of did it for me was joining the Peace Corps. I, I did the Peace Corps from 2000 to 2002 uh, in the Kingdom of Tonga, which is in the South Pacific Ocean. And I, I just kind of took a leap, you know, and it turned out fine. In fact, it's one of the best things that I've ever done in my life. And it, that gave me a sense of fearlessness because it's like, if I can survive that, I can do anything in the United States where I speak the language, I know the culture, like I have a network, I have family, you know, over there I had nothing. I was starting from zero and it worked out just fine. So it gave me sort of that, that, that sense of um, fearlessness, like that really served me well because it also, it also has helped me to leave situations that aren't working for me very like on a dime. For example, like there was a, a job, my first job in, in DC, um, I just wasn't happy at because I knew I, I needed to do something else. And I left that job the day that Bear Stearns crashed in 2008 and I had no other job. And I was like, it's going to work out. I'm not worried about it. And it did. <laughs> <laughs> That's so awesome. Yeah. So I'd love to know more about the, the journey, the origin part of the story. So you're working there for that place at Bear Stearns in 2008. Is that when you made the transition towards being in the education department or walk us through your journey? Oh, no, I wasn't working at Bear Stearns at all. I was uh, still uh, in, in education and nonprofit. I'm just saying I left my job the same day that- Oh, that got it. Yeah, yeah, of course. Market crash. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, but but I've been in education pretty much the entirety of my career. Uh, I, I really can't explain why other than education for me was so important in my journey to help pull me into the middle class. Like I grew up on welfare. I was the oldest child of, of a teen mom um, who eventually, you know, had a drug problem. And my story, like I shouldn't be where I'm at, right? Mm -hmm. The statistics will tell you that I shouldn't be here, but I am. Um, and it's it's because of this will and this drive that partly I was born with, but the other part, I think it's just, you know, like I said before, like I just kind of took these leaps and I bet on myself every single time and, and, and it was a good bet. Yeah, it's always a good bet, I would argue. Like even if it doesn't work out, it's a good bet. 
because of the, the things that you learn. But I mean, it is a lot more fun if it works out well. So yeah, absolutely. So I would like to dive in to your your current work, what you're doing with the education department. And I want to do a couple mm -hmm. things with it. One, I want to talk about how does that work help you in real estate, if at all? And then, and then kind mm -hmm. of just give us a, a state. I know you're managing the distribution, it sounds like, of like $200 billion uh, from mm -hmm. the government into these, these school systems. So if you can kind of give us an idea of how that works and maybe how that's prepared you to be a real estate investor. I would say first and foremost, uh, the work that I do in policy has me, it gives me a sense of comfort with anything policy, legal related regulations, right? So real estate and the, the tax code around real estate is incredibly regulated. Um, you know, Airbnbs are increasingly regulated. Um, and I have a sense of comfort in all of those things. Like I mentioned earlier, like I'm using a self-directed IRA. We're, you know, in the process of permitting a, a glamping campsite, all of those things, it's paperwork, it's requirements. I'm incredibly comfortable in that space. So I think that that gives me a little bit of an edge in terms of doing things that are unique or new or a little untested because it's like, well, as long as we follow the rules, we understand the rules and we follow them, we should be fine. So I think that that is one of the biggest aspects um, or maybe skill sets that's, that's transferable that has really helped me in my real estate investing career so far. Which is really impressive. So the, it's, it's one thing, I mean, obviously the there's an intellect that's necessary to understand these documents. And, and then there's also a personality component. You know, there's a lot of people maybe that would think about being an attorney's, but they just decide not to because spending their days reading large texts. So can you describe, like, I would like to get to know the real Laura, like as far from a personality standpoint, like how much of this job, like you're saying you're comfortable. Does that mean like you love that type of work? Like you love pulling up a policy document and reading through it, or it's like, Hey, like I'm good at it. I'll tolerate it so I can do these other things. So I was, it's funny you say lawyer. I was actually pre-law in college and didn't study for the LSAT. And I was like, well, if I'm not studying for this, am I really going to study for law school? And now here I am in an incredibly legal professions. So I'm, my brain is built for it. My, my, and I'm also just like a rule follower. Um, and like I said, I was, I'm an oldest child. So I like like telling people what to do. It's part <laughs> right. of my personality, um, <laughs> being in charge. Um, and, and policy is all of that, right? Like you're crafting the rules, um, and you're navigating them to achieve whatever objective it is you, you want to achieve. And, and my brain is just built to, to work that way. Um, I didn't know it coming in. Um, but I, I do think that innately somehow I just kind of understood that this kind of career was something that I was built to do um, because I do remember as a kid do not ask me where this came from because I don't know but I would say as a little little girl I wanted to be the chief justice of the supreme court wow and I think it's because I was like oh that person's in charge right <laughs> and I like being in charge but I just had I think a, an innate sense of um wanting to be involved in the legal system and, and helping to, to shape and craft the laws and regulations. Um, and it also just turns out that I'm, I'm really well suited to the work and I, I thoroughly enjoy it. Like, you know, you give me a set of regulations and I'm, I'm happy as a clam for some reason. Oh, I'm so glad there are people out there like you. 
So it's, it's really interesting too, because like you could have had the desire to be president. And so like, it's, it's something that I'm like, really like curious about and excited because like you wanted to be the chief justice of the Supreme court. So did you have like any exposure through like family TV, et cetera, to the justice system? It must have been, I, I would say that there's a, knowing what I know now, there's a huge difference between being, you know, a policy professional, even like the legislative branch, as well as the um, executive branch, and then being the principal, right? Like the, the president. I, I don't want that life. Like, I don't want to be in front. I don't want to be the face. I don't want to be the one on the bully pulpit. I want to be the guy behind the guy who's like calling the shots. Like, that's where I'm most comfortable um, I, I do prefer to to do that work more in the the background rather than being at the forefront. Yeah, that's so cool. All right, so I, I would really like to dive into your. You mentioned earlier, like the school system, and we should be teaching this financial education. Mm -hmm. Can you just give us a glimpse? Like, what are the two or three things that you think the school system and the education system at large is doing incredibly well that the public doesn't know about but should know about? And then maybe also give us the flip side. Like, what are the things that we aren't doing as well as we should? And if you had complete control over the system, you would you would change. Oh, that's the, oof, we could be here for hours. Um, I think that the school system does a really good job of, of socializing children uh, to to be in and amongst other people and learn, helping them to learn how to get along and really function as part of a community. I, I do think that the, the school system does an excellent job of doing that. I also think that the, the school system does in general um, promote more independent thinking. So what I mean by that there are, uh, and I'm familiar with a number of models of overseas education systems. Many of them tend to be incredibly rote, meaning you are going to learn these five things and that's it. And the American system, you know, we, we've got a set of standards that each state has and they say what, you know, children should know and be able to do. But each teacher has a say in how those things are taught, right? Like there's no prescription for how to teach students, you know, and that has positives and negatives. But I think one of the positives that it has is that it allows students to um, be exposed to lots of different styles of teaching and learning. And, and I think that that fosters a lot of creativity within students. So, if, and, and if you kind of compare there, you know, so a couple of data sets out there um, that kind of show that um, you know, American students tend to be a bit more creative and independent thinkers compared to students from overseas. However, overseas students tend to blow our students out of the water in terms of math and science, right? Like those are two really, really important skill sets. And it's like, well, ideally you would have all of that. You know, you wouldn't be fostering a sense of like independence and creativity at the expense of math and science, you know, and vice versa, but you would really do both. And I think that like no education system has really figured that out. I think they tend to lean very heavily toward being rote versus, um, you know, everyone to, to, to their own, like you can figure out how to teach your students and, and that's fine. I, I do think we need a bit more of a balanced system. 
Yeah, this is such a a nice perspective to hear because I mean that's generally like people don't know how to do anything other than compare what we're told, which is that math and science is in America is significantly lower than in other places. And so you're saying when these other countries are more rote, they're more just sticking to obviously things to memorize, math equations, science equations, etc., as opposed to us spending a little bit more time in the humanitarian efforts and in the softer sciences. And I think in, in the styles of teaching and learning, I, I do think that the, the styles of teaching and learning, this isn't a rule, but, but it, it can tend to be a bit more rigid in other countries where their education systems are more centralized, like the, the, the federal government in those countries say like, this is our curriculum, this is what you're gonna teach students, this is when you're gonna teach them. Ours is the complete opposite, it's very decentralized. So you're seeing lots of different models, like from classroom to classroom, you'll see different models. And, and, and I think that there are pluses and minuses to, to both of those systems and, and that they can learn from one another. Um, you know, math and science are important, at the same time, you know, not all types of math and science are important for students to learn by the time they, they graduate high school. Like, for example, when you think about the type of math that we do every day, it's not algebra. It's more statistics. You know, so it, 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 I think it would be more beneficial for students to learn much more of a blend of, of, of types of math, right? So more mathematical critical thinking, more statistics, because that's just what you need to kind of navigate and understand the everyday world versus the Pythagorean theorem. Like I haven't used that since I left high school. Totally. Yeah. And and being a math major, is, it's, it's kind of fun to reflect on these things because I'm always evaluating in, in my business life, you know, like being in real estate, like we'll calculate areas of some unique uh, land plots. Most of the time the tax records just tell you, but sometimes I have some some fun of evaluating this, but yeah, for, for the average person, it's, it's very, very rare that they're going to do a little bit any more than arithmetic and some basic statistics. So we're also, I think, entering with technology and globalization, we're entering into a time where creativity is significantly more like of utility with the ability, like, I mean, graphic design, video editing, like all of these types of positions are like really scaling up as internet becomes bigger. Like, can you speak to like the way that our system works in America and how that prepares people for work afterwards compared to other countries? Like, are we preparing our people better for the work that, that happens? Um, I would say overall, no, because we, we still have a system where by and large, you're preparing about a third of the students to go to college. You, you have a chunk that drop out and then the rest enter the workforce. And, and, and by and large, those who enter the workforce and who enter college don't have the basic skills, right? About half of students uh, in public colleges um, and universities enter some form of remediation, meaning a course where they have to catch up before they can take courses for credit in reading and math. That's an abhorrent statistic. Um, and you'll see, I think McKinsey and a couple of other entities have done surveys of employers saying, hey, uh, you know, the, the, the entry level workforce that you get, that you receive, are they prepared to, to work on the job? And a lot, a lot of employers will say no. 
So I, I don't know that we're doing a great job of preparing our students for that next step. And I, I think that we are still thinking about it in terms of an, of an old model where, you know, a portion of our students will go to college, a portion will enter the workforce. Well, we should really be preparing all students to do whatever they want mm -hmm. after high school, whether that is college, whether that is work, but everybody is going to need a, a, a basic set of, of knowledge, skills, and abilities to do that. And I think the research kind of shows you what that is. And we need to work from that knowledge base backwards. Okay. If we know that kids need a, a, a command of basic statistics by the time they graduate 12th grade, what does that mean for 11th grade? What does that mean for 10th? You can, you can work backwards, um, you know, to develop a scope and sequence of what kids need to learn throughout their schooling. But I think we're not quite taking that intentional approach. We're just using this, recycling this old model that frankly really isn't working very well. Do you believe that we are moving in the direction of being able to prepare kids with all those skills? Or is that something that still needs quite a bit of change to, to start that ball rolling? I think we're at a, we're at a point where there is an awareness that we need to move to that model. And there are a number of states who are, are actively moving toward that model, but I think it's just, you know, it's, it's trying to move this huge ship <laughs> against a current. And I think it's going to take a while, but I, I do think that there's widespread recognition that students need a set of of skills in addition to academics. They've got to be able to communicate. They've got to be able to think critically. They've got to be able to manage upwards. They've got to be able, you know, to work in groups. These other sets of skills that are important, regardless of where they go after high school, um, that that have to be, I think, integrated into our, our educational approach throughout K-12. Yeah. And so mentioning earlier, we need to be teaching our kids about you know, financial matters, financial freedom. What What are some of the other key things that like, like we need to make sure we instill, you know, by the time they graduate high school that we're, that we're not currently. Knowledge of the tax code, right? I, I think knowledge of the tax code is really important because if you think about what laws and policies are, they are a system of incentives to get people to behave in certain ways. And that's what the tax code is. And I don't think people really think about it in that sense. But if you think about, well, what are all of the incentives that the tax code gives you for the type of work um, that you do? Well, you're actually pretty heavily penalized if, if you earn a W-2 wage, right? Like it is the highest taxed um, status in the tax code compared to if you're a real estate investor, you get tons of tax breaks, which tells you, oh, hey, the government wants more people to invest in real estate. Why? Because it, you know, provides housing, which is, you know, a huge service for society. Um, and so I think students really need to learn much more about like, what are the systems of incentives and disincentives in, in society, including in, in the tax code? Um, because with that knowledge, I think you can learn, okay, well then what are the ways that I can benefit, right? How can I sort of like build wealth? Um, I do think the other thing that, that kids need to be intentionally taught is the difference between surviving and thriving, which is really kind of subjective for, 
every person, but I think at its core, you know, there's the, people can reach a point where you can live the exact life that you want to live because money isn't an issue. You're not trying to survive. Um, and you know, there, there are ways that you can create your life to be able to do that. Um, and I, I don't know that that's, that's, um, a perspective that, that kids are, are made aware of. And I, I think people kind of stumble on it, like, you know, us here on this podcast, but it, I think it's something that should be intentionally taught to students. 100%. Like this is such a breath of fresh air to be able to hear some of your perspectives. So I know like there's a lot of people out there who feel, you know, underserved by the school system, underserved by the tax code, right? The tax code is for the rich who are taking advantage of the poor, mm -hmm. so on and so forth. You're talking about the tax code being an incentive, almost like a an employer. They they move the needle in their business by how they incentivize their employees. And if they create good incentives, the things they want to see in the business increase and so on and so forth. So what I'm, what I'm hearing you saying is, is the reason you believe the government is incentivizing, you know, tax savings for investors is because they want those investors in turn to provide more housing options, better housing options. And if we were to flip the tax code where the W-2 earners were getting all the benefits and the investors were not, we would have a big problem. Can you kind of speak to like your, your take on it? Like, is it good that they're providing tax incentives or should those be shifted? For the, for the investors, that's yeah, that's a really good that's a really good question. Um, if I think about it from the perspective, because I'm both a W two employee and and an investor, and you know, I'm I'm very lucky to for my job, I am in a role where I I am helping to create good for society, right? Like that that's 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 part of what I do, right? I'm trying to be a, a good steward of our government's resources and making sure that these these funds are being spent appropriately. Um, you know, but not all work is built that way, right? Like not all work is truly beneficial for society. And of course, you know, that's all in the eye of the beholder. But you know, if you if you think about, for example, like um, and there's nothing wrong with this, but like you know, some things are more harmful to society and not like, I don't know, McDonald's food. Like I, I just personally wouldn't say that McDonald's food is something that's healthy for people to consume, but there's an entire industry, you know, of fast food. Now every once in a while, sure. But you know, this is a billion dollar industry. So this is something that, you know, lots of people are consuming and look, Americans are, we might be the most obese uh, in the whole world. There might be some other countries. In fact, Tonga, where I was uh, for Peace Corps, might beat them out but you know if you if you think about it from that perspective like not all jobs benefit society um in in you know and i i, I sound like a, i feel like i'm being a little bit judgmental here but just like taking the example um and not all real estate investing is uh, is beneficial for society but if you think about the core of it which is like you're providing housing for people, you are providing places for businesses to be, right? And to provide services to people. Like the core of it um, is, is to benefit society. And so, you know, the, the tax code is is trying to incent more of that. Um, now, should they incent W-2 
I don't know. I, I would need to think more about, well, what are the pluses and minuses? Because like, that's the trick to policy is, you know, you want to take your time in making it because you're not thinking about all of the different angles and what are the ways that, you know, people can game the system and what are the unintended consequences? So I don't know that I could answer the question of whether I think there should be more incentives for W-2. Um, but, you know, there's, from my perspective, I think that there are fewer incentives for W-2 employees because the government needs tax revenue in order <laughs> to run, right? So they need W-2 employees, um, you know, and, and it's a, our society is built for people to go to work, right? It's not built for people to become real estate investors, which is kind of why it's so hard to be a real estate investor, right? You got to come up with capital. Like you have to buy the right deal. You have to fix it up. You have to find the right tenants. Like this is not a plug and play. And when you think about a job, like it's a lot easier to get a job than to be a real estate investor. Um, so it's, it's, it's kind of like this little seductive place where you can go and hang out and, and exchange for that, get a check every two weeks. Whereas, you know, being a real estate investor, you are, um, putting up your capital. You're taking a huge amount of risk. There's no promise, you know, of getting that back or of being profitable, you know, so, so there are, there are, you know, those, those, um, pros and cons to it. And I think at the end of the day, you know, you can reap bigger rewards as a real estate investor because you take a greater risk. And as a W-2 employee, you just don't take that risk. Yeah. I kind of rambled. I don't know if I actually answered your question. <laughs> no. It, first of all, for anybody listening, this is on the fly. Like Laura didn't have three weeks to prepare for these, these questions. Like she is delivering this, you know, on air on the fly for us. So I, I think this is tremendous. And one thing that you are causing me to think about is, is really the concept of, if we flip the tax code, right? Because I mean, I think a lot of people are like, hey, all the tax code benefit the rich. And and so therefore it's all at the disadvantage of the poor, but let's say we flipped it. I mean, the number of real estate investors it, as a number is so small compared to the population. The government couldn't have enough taxation to function otherwise. Um, yeah, and so I think that's a really, really interesting thing. Like I, I just love thinking about, you know, how, how can we create a better society? How can we create a better life for ourselves and for others? And you know, maybe, maybe this really is the best way to tax in order to get the government, the revenue it needs to function. And, you know, obviously in turn, if investors are being, you know, as good to people as possible, they do provide a pretty amazing thing for people to have experiences, housing, et cetera. So yeah, I really appreciate that answer. So take us now into your investing. So you've done a lot of really, really cool things. So take us into your portfolio and into your vision for how you see things moving forward in the future. Yeah. So right now I own two two-unit um, homes and a glamping dome that doesn't live anywhere yet. We haven't built it. Um, but uh, very soon, probably by the end of next year, we're going to have a three-unit glamping site. Um, and then we property manage one other home. Um, the plan for next year is to buy another house hack in our same town and do the same thing that we're we're doing now. Um, and probably every year keep getting a house hack until the bank stops approving us for that, which as long as they're primary residences, I, they should, you know, prove you and your debt to income ratio um, is within what they require. It should be fine. Um, so like that's the next 
two years. Um, a big reason we are doing a glamping site right now is because there are not a lot of examples of people having done it. Like it, it, it's a huge administrative hurdle to kind of cross, like you have to get permitted and approved by the health department of the locality, by, um, you know, the building permit office. Um, you know, it's a huge administrative lift to, to pull one of these things off. And so if, if we're able to do it, then we want to be able to teach others how to do this, um, possibly build a course, um, and then keep replicating that for ourselves. So, um, you know, buy like luxury cabins with a lot of land and kind of do a land hack and put a couple of glampers on there, maybe a tree house, things like that. Because I think also, you know, the thing that I'm careful of just, just being a, a public policy official, you know, I think there is a slippery slope um, especially in the short-term rental space where, you know, you can make less long-term housing available. And I really don't want to be in that space. It also tends to be the more heavily regulated space. Like when you're in a town or a big city and you're doing short-term rentals, um, it can be heavily regulated. So I really just want to avoid all that and, and, um, go into more of the, the vacation market. Um, so the goal is we will probably have, five to seven operational units by the end of next year. And we want to grow by about three to five each year thereafter. That's awesome. Tell me a little bit more about your goal formation. You're obviously a very intentional person. Why three to five? Why not one? Why not 10? Well, I am in politics and want to be able to have the, the freedom um, to decide to work or not, um, come 2024. So, you know, there's an important number I've got to reach by that point to be able to, to leave my job. If I wanted to, I really do enjoy what I do. So I, I don't think I will, but you never know. Um, and I also want to reach that goal of 100 K cash flow per year. Um, I want to be able to take care of, of my family, of, um, the people I call my parents, my aunt and uncle, like just have them retire in comfort. Um, and it just, it costs money to do that. So three to five of these per year, because we are seeing the, the cash flow, cash flow, right? So after all expenses, if, if you do these right and you design them right and they are, they are top performing units, you're looking at cash flow anywhere from like six to 10,000 per. So if we're uh, per month, exactly. so if we're able to build three to five of these each year, you know, we'll, we'll reach our goal pretty quickly. It's, it's absolutely incredible. And I could see from the outside observer, like your ability to understand policy and documents and regulations and all those types of things allows you to probably feel very comfortable in taking on these redevelopment projects or not, obviously necessarily mm -hmm. development, but people who are terrified of switching zoning or switching use or those types of things probably feels mm -hmm. fairly easy for you. And the rewards, the benefits of increasing those incomes is, I mean, like when you look at the, the original sweep of investors that came from the Kiyosaki model, it was like, everybody was so happy to have a hundred or $200 a month per unit cash flow. I mean, you're describing a life where people are developing six to $10,000 a month per unit, which is just upper property that I mean, like, that's not even comparable. What is that? Is that like a factor of like 60 to a hundred times greater or something like that? It's, um, you're the math teacher. I don't know. Yeah. I'm trying to do it in my head. 
And, and uh, but but that I mean that's just really incredible. What are some of the things that you're seeing as you're doing these that people should be should be careful of? Because I mean, obviously, it's an obvious attraction, all that extra income. Mm -hmm. But but what are some of the things that you're seeing would be the potential pitfalls? So the biggest one, don't just be in it for the money, because this is really hard. Um, you know, we are almost a year into building our glamping site. We don't even have the actual product yet. Like it's going to get shipped in the next couple of days. So if you're in it just for the money, I think you can get disappointed really quickly because this takes time and it is a complex process. Um, you know, for us, it's fine because we have a vision. Like we want to create a, an experience. We One, we want to learn how to do this so that we can teach others. Like that's part of the vision. And then there's a there's an experience we want to create for our guests. Like we want these to be luxury. We want these to be private. You know, we want to give people something, you know, that they are going to remember for the rest of their lives. And, and that kind of vision, you know, helps you through, you know, the, the long periods of, you know, and, and some of the mistakes, like we didn't get on the ball quick enough last year. So guess what? We couldn't, we couldn't submit for our permits last year because we couldn't, sample the soil in order to get uh, they're called concrete footers or something like that like we missed that period and like we're kind of coming up on it now so i'm like you know um so that's one of the overarching recommendations i would make like find your why because it's a long road it's hard and you will be you will be tested and if you don't have that solid why you're going to quit at the first sign of difficulty so that would be the first thing that i would recommend to listeners who are thinking about going down this kind of venture the second thing is you know and i completely understand that like laws and regulations can be a really intimidating topic but public servants are really there to help um you know some people it can feel like they're just there to say no but if you walk into an office, that's the other thing, go in person, introduce yourself um, and just share what is it that you are trying to do and, and, and ask the person, so, so how can I achieve that goal? Is that possible? And a lot of times they're going to help you out. Um, be, I know that that's the approach I take as a, as a policymaker. I ask, okay, well, so what's your end goal? What is your objective? Like, I understand the thing that you want to do right now, but at the end of the day, like, what is that thing that you want to achieve? All right, let's look at this rule structure we have, and I'm going to help you figure out how to get there. Nine times out of 10, you know, folks at, at the county office are, are going to work with you if you come in and you're honest and you say what it is you want to do. So don't be too intimidated. Um, also look online, you know, they're going to have a lot of their applications, a lot of their requirements on their website. I know that I really appreciate when someone has taken the time to look these things up, read them and try to understand them, you know, so do a little bit of due diligence before you go in person and meet with them. That would be, that would be my second piece of advice. Yes. And I, I know many a frustrated real estate investor who's had had some challenges in, in their quest to deal with the cities of the county. So I think that's really, really pertinent advice. Have you run any, any struggles in that process or has it pretty much been, I mean, I know it takes time and stuff, but, or have you had mostly just pure success in, in your endeavors? Uh, well, def we've definitely had um, some challenges uh, with, with permitting. Um, 
with this unit, actually, we, um, the, the person that the contractor that we were working with said, we didn't need a permit for what we were, we were going to do. And I didn't do my due diligence. I did not take the advice that I just gave people. Um, and I was like, okay, well, you're the expert. Fine. Turns out we did need a permit and you know, the, the city found out and like, they were actually pretty cool with us, thankfully. And they said, you know what, just stop what you're doing, you know, submit the permit and, and whatnot. But like, just, you know, again, make sure you do your due diligence. Um, we, we made it work. It was fine. Um, but yeah, that's, did I answer your question? You did. No, I love it. (laughs) So we like to get into purpose and why. And so if you had an unlimited amount of money, in essence, a billion dollars in the bank account and a hundred lifetimes of cash flow, like how would you structure your life moving forward? Oh, um, I would definitely have homes in amazing places in the world. So we love, I don't know if people have heard of Todos Santos in uh, Mexico. It's just above Cabo San Lucas, beautiful little town. We went there last year, loved it would have a home there, probably a home in Bali, just homes throughout the the globe and be able to travel there on a moment's notice. Um, I would probably still be working on something because work is just really important to me, just being productive and, and, and um, I think it's, I recognize that I've been given a lot of gifts in this life and that I'm a very capable person. And I just, I feel a responsibility to, to um, put myself to good use for lack of a better term. So I'm sure I would be working on, on something. Um, I don't know what it would be. I'd probably still be in real estate. I, I, I do think I'd love to like build some sort of um, curriculum to, to teach kids about investing in real estate investing and maybe have that set up as a, I don't know if folks are familiar with um, career and technical education, but it's a certain kind of program that high schoolers and young college kids can get access to. It's woefully underfunded and there just, you know, isn't enough um, to serve every kid, but um, setting one of those up and having it taught um, available in every high school would be, you know, a dream of mine. So working on that. Um maybe eventually writing a book, mentoring other real estate investors, I think other things to just kind of help bring others along um, and help them realize their dreams. Like if, if I've reached that level, you know, where I've got a billion in the bank, you know, I, I, I would definitely feel um, a, a sense of duty to be able to share what I learned with others. Incredible. Most people think of billions as some big number. You're orchestrating the delivery of 200 billion to the school system. So that's probably like, what? Only a billion. I'm used to 200 billion. So Awesome, awesome answer. So in what do you see your vision being for your life in the next 12 to 18 months? What do you hope to accomplish? Building the glam site. Yep. I want to get that glam site done, the next house hack done. Um, I would love to attract and work with investors um, for some of these ventures. Like I would love to buy um, a cabin that's on a big plot of land, like at least 10, 20 acres build, you know, a tree house or two and just start scaling. Love it. Love it. Love it. Well, Laura, thank you so much for taking the time to share about your life, your business, to share these philosophical conversations with us about the education system and about the tax code. 
And it's just so neat to see somebody who is so dedicated to what they do, so competent, and is able to cross over such different paths from W-2 government employee to real estate investor. So, so thank you for being you. Thank you for coming on our show. And for those listening, please take down what you learned today. Take one action. If it's not getting six to 10,000 a month from a property, like maybe it's something that you learned about setting up your life goals and your strategies, but write it down. Get somebody that you know you can share with so they can hold you accountable and start taking action with the next seven days because freedom is just one action at a time. And so guys, thank you for tuning in and we'll catch you on the next one.